In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Joe Ferris about the test-driven development workflow he uses to build Rails applications at ThoughtBot. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 46. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. Uh, Before we get started with the interview today, just a couple quick updates on some things that are going on with me. If you were at Laracon a couple days ago, you may have heard me announce that I'm working on a new project. Uh, So what I'm doing is I'm working on a comprehensive video course on using test-driven development to build Laravel applications. So the plan is to build an entire application. It's going to be like a concert listing and ticket purchasing platform. We're going to build the whole thing from scratch using TDD, so writing everything test first. I'm going to screencast the whole thing and kind of document it and put it all together and uh, make that available for everyone. So if that sounds like something you'd be uh, interested in learning more about or possibly checking out when it's ready, uh, head over to testdrivenlaravel.com and shoot me your email address and I'll uh, occasionally keep you updated with how it's going and uh, let you know when it's ready. should be out uh, this fall is the plan. Anyways, that's all I got. Uh, On to the interview with Joe Ferris. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with uh, Joe Ferris, the CTO of ThoughtBot. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, For anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself? Sure. Um, I am a developer and the CTO at ThoughtBot. I've been doing Rails for a long time. I also like to say that I have a functional flair. Um, so I lead the development team here at ThoughtBot, and I am also a developer myself. Awesome. So uh, I've kind of been following the stuff that you guys have been doing for years and years. And uh, particularly, there's a lot of like early Giant Robots episodes back in the day when it was a lot more technical before Ben started getting more interested in kind of the product development and marketing stuff. And you used to be on the show a lot and you guys would talk about stuff like object oriented design and testing and stuff like that. And uh, I've wanted the opportunity to kind of pick your brain a bit about some of the TDD workflows that you guys have at ThoughtBot for a while. So I was hoping we could uh, go through some of that stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Ben got bored with me and my programming and I haven't been invited (laughs) on giant robots in some time. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, do you mind just kind of giving a brief overview of, doesn't have to be brief, but kind of a walk through what your kind of TDD workflow is like for a typical uh, like Rails style application that you might be working on a ThoughtBot? Sure. Um, so a lot of it, I, I feel like you can preface any answer like this, but a lot of it depends on the situation. But our typical stack is to use Capybara and RSpec. And then um, as far as drivers go, we stick with the standard rack test as long as we can and then pull in Capybara WebKit usually when we need to test something that involves JavaScript or something fancy like that. Um, But we like to do what's called outside-in development where we typically start as far out as we're going to write a test. So the, the highest layer for us is a feature test or an integration test, which typically will, like in a Rails application, will be written using Capybara. And then what we'll do is write that. And when we get to the first reasonable failure, there are a few different ways people can take it. My favorite approach is to kind of slime my way through the feature test to at least get to the failure. Because I don't know if you've ever written integration tests before, but you you probably start with a lot of stuff that doesn't exist yet. So you'd be like, all right, well, I'm going to be testing, uh, you know, adding products to the page. So I guess first I'll add some existing products so you can see them. And then the first error you get is like, oh, I don't have a product factory. Sure. So if you sort of follow the error all the way down and implement things as you go, you, you end up writing a lot of code before you actually see that test move at all. And you end up adding like models and database tables and factory girl factories and all kinds of stuff. But I like to be able to get to the basic thing that I'm testing, which is like, I want to see this product name on the page and it's not there. And I don't want to write like 500 lines of code before I get there. Sure. And so I will just fill in what it's asking me for. So if it says like, oh, I don't have a product factory, instead of saying like, oh, well, that means I need a product model and a migration, and I'll probably write a unit test for that, then I will fill in the most basic factory I can that does absolutely nothing. And then So when you're talking about a product factory, you mean like a factory girl factory, right? Right, exactly, yeah. So in this integration test, even if you're starting from like the outside, you're kind of like setting up the world with kind of direct kind of model access, 
usually? Yeah. So the other way to go is to do everything through the UI as much as possible. And we've actually, we've written applications that way before as an experiment. And there are two issues there. And one is that is, it's just unbelievably slow. There's the unbearably slow, like fine. And you think about it and it's like, this is great. Like it's actually going through the whole workflow. Like I know you can navigate through every link and that I'm not ever creating impossible data. And then you can get through like a very small Rails application and have a test suite that takes like two hours to run. <laughs> Uh, and the other problem is that you end up running the same stuff over and over again. And so when something weird happens in your code, like if you have any kind of bug or um, you know you make a mistake somewhere when you're refactoring, then instead of getting you know maybe one or two tests that tell you what the problem is, you get a lot of weird integration test failures that are like, I tried to click on this link, but it's not on that page. Or like, I'm getting JavaScript in the browser. And that that's not really a good debugging experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I tend to do the same thing, but I've had like reservations about it in the past, kind of thinking like, well, should I be doing everything at like that same level of abstraction that I'm trying to write my assertions at? Do you have any opinions, I guess, like overall on that? Like, how do you make decisions about that? What usually factors into your decision making when you're trying to decide like, how should the setup look versus what the assertion looks like in terms of like what layer you're doing both at? I do try to keep to a single level of abstraction as much as possible. So like if I'm if I'm writing a very simple integration test, that would usually be pretty detailed and I'll use factory girl factories and capybara methods. But when it gets to the point where I can't hold the whole thing in my head because there are too many details, then I'll start to abstract them away. And the rule I try to follow is like, however abstract I make one part of the test, I make that entire test that abstract. And so if my expectation now, instead of like looking for a particular model's value on a page using Capybara, is just the method that says like, should see product name, then I don't want the first line of it to be like, create product name assigned to this string from a sequence. Yeah, okay, makes sense. So you were talking about how you like to kind of like slime your way through some of these tests. Does that mean like, if you're writing this test you're talking about where you want to see a product on a page, you might just, you know, hard code that result in the template that the controller is going to render as your first step? Uh, that's one thing you can do. I typically generate my data from sequences, and so that won't help anyway. What, what do you mean, I guess? When you say when you generate them from sequences, you mean like the data that's coming out of the factory? Exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll set most of the names to sequences so that it you can't accidentally expect a literal string, which also means that once the test is passing, you can't put in a literal string and deploy it, uh, which is definitely something I've seen before. <laughs> and does that is that sequence changing like every time you run the test? Is that what's kind of protecting you from that? Or is it just like as you add more tests, then that sequence is going to change because the factory is going to generate different numbers? Or I guess what I'm really asking is the specifics of how Factory Girl generates sequences these days. And if it's always, if, if part of the reason for the sequencing feature is to be able to kind of randomize your your data a little bit. Is that kind of like one of the goals? Yeah, so the goal is to make the actual string unpredictable, I guess, so that you can't depend on a literal string. The way Factory Girl generates sequences is pretty stupid. It starts at one at the very beginning of the test suite and then increments it by one every time. And then you can interpret that anytime you want or any way you want. So like in your actual sequence value, you don't have to interpolate the number directly. You could use it to follow some formula or whatever. But that does mean that if you're running a single test and generating one product, that by default, you end up with the same string each time. But then if you run your tests in random order, like RSpec does by default, then before you go to check in your code, you are highly likely to see an error that's like, hey, man, you literally put in product five. That's probably not what you want to show people. So it's going to prevent you from like hard coding strings in your assertions more than anything, right? Like you would have to assert based on like by by accessing a property on the object that was returned from a factory. Right, exactly. And then the end goal there is to make sure you don't hard code in values into the production data. Got it. When you're doing this outside in stuff and, you know, let's we'll use this product page example, I guess, where you uh, where you want to maybe see information about an individual product or something. Right. How do you decide, like, what code to put in the controller if you could just slime your way through it? You know what I mean? What what's kind of the thing that's like forcing you to drive out a real implementation usually, and especially an implementation that you're actually happy with and not just like the first one that makes the test pass? Mm hmm. Well, I mean, I, I start from the first one that makes the test pass, right? And so the initial controller action is very likely going to be a blank page. 
And so like, actually when I'm writing tests, I frequently start with the expectation. And that's what I'm really trying to get to is that like, I have uh, something I want to happen on a certain page and I want to navigate through it until I get there and prove that it's not on the page. And so like, if you start implementing things on your page, right, before you actually see the test fail in the way you expect, then you don't actually know that you tested it correctly and you don't know that you're even following the right path. Like if you're writing tests or if you're writing templates because the error you saw was there's no such action as show on this controller, then you haven't actually seen what your failure is yet. You're hitting exceptions before you even get to the expectation. Yeah, so you'll you'll kind of sketch out the test that you want to write and then just kind of do the absolute minimum that you need to do to change the error. Right. And then actually frequently I don't have to change the integration test ever after that because integration tests for me are like a very high level, you know, I poked around and nothing blew up kind of test. Like I try to test as few details as possible from there and I try to have extremely broad coverage but not a lot of depth and I take care of that depth with unit tests. Okay. So one thing that I've seen people do um, and that I do myself quite often is when I'm starting with like an acceptance test, I'll often end up like writing code in like a controller say that I know doesn't exist yet. Even if I know of like a way to get the results I want by directly calling whatever, you know, sequence of active record scopes that I need to, to get the data that I want. Maybe I know my goal in my head is that I want to create some sort of helper that has a better name for like getting that like popular posts or, or something like that. You know what I mean? So I find like what I often end up doing is like trying to use that method before it's defined and then treating the error that says that method doesn't exist as an opportunity to start writing a unit test for it. Is that a workflow that you guys use? That's definitely something I've done. I'm not sure I could say which one is the most common. Once I get to the point that I have an integration test that's failing in a useful way, that is like a very comfortable place for me because I basically have this high level thing that I can repeatedly do to tell me like, hey, you're not done. And then from there, there are a lot of different things you could do to be like, okay, well, I could start with a unit test for you know a particular controller even and say like, I, I wanna see these records from the database. Or you could say, well, I'm gonna just start writing code as if it already existed and see the failure. Or you could even say like, well, now that I know the error is there and some of these models exist already, you know, you might say like, well, I'll write it without the scopes and I'll just put it in the controller and then actually get the test passing and then you can refactor from there. Like having a meaningfully failing test is a comfortable place for me, but even more comfortable is having a place where the tests are green because from there, the only thing you have to do is refactor. So if you did all that work like directly in the controller, say, and now the test is passing and you want to refactor that into like something that's on the model, say, or something with a better name somewhere. So you don't just have like, you know, a ton of code in the controller. What is kind of the driving force now that's going to force you to unit test that stuff? Or do you just sometimes not choose to unit test it and let it kind of be covered by that umbrella of the acceptance test? At that point, I will usually write a unit test. So like doing some refactoring where you don't introduce changes to other files or um, like if I'm running a unit test and I don't have to change things outside of the file I'm testing, I'm comfortable refactoring. But there aren't many refactorings that I will do without having a unit test I can run. I, I won't do a lot of that with um, integration tests just because I find the feedback cycle is so poor. Um, like when you, when you run it, first of all, you have to wait a long time to get any information. When it fails, it doesn't give you very good information. You usually just get an exception. And you know in your head, if you're writing a good integration test, that what you're actually looking for is pretty nonspecific. Like you're probably just looking for something on the page, but there's so many things that can go wrong. Like it could be in the wrong order. It could you know, not have performed some specific transformation you expect, or like maybe the pagination isn't happening. Like, I really hope you're not testing <laughs> uh, pagination from an integration perspective by making like 30 records and then going to page two, right? Um, and so I'm not very comfortable making those kind of changes by just rerunning an integration test. Like I feel like it's not very effective and it's not very enjoyable. So if you have that code in the controller, then like we'll use the active record um, kind of change where, where, whatever example, right? And you wanted to extract a scope from that. You would write a unit test to like for the active record model for the scope that you're creating before making any changes in the controller and then get that test passing and then replace the code in the controller with the new method that you've now created and driven out separately in a unit test, kind of like on the side. 
That is, that's definitely a workflow I've used. Like that's a good one, I think. If you end up with a chain of like active record calls, or even if you end up with a chain of active record scopes, sometimes it can be uncomfortable to leave them together in a controller. And so you might bring out method just for that combination. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned like um, unit testing controllers. Typically for me, I find like I end up not unit testing controllers much and just kind of let the acceptance test handle that. So I'd love to know kind of like what your you know, decision-making process behind that is and like why you think the controller test is valuable uh, even with the acceptance test. Yeah, I don't, I don't test all of my controllers. Like I don't TDD them you know, before I add anything to a controller. And I do rely on the integration tests. And I think there are a couple reasons people, including me, do that. One is that the integration tests are pretty close to the controller. Another is that the controllers are generally just glue code anyway. And so like the integration tests are verifying that everything is glued together. And the controllers are just kind of the nexus of all the actual interesting pieces. And so there's not much else to test. And I, I think the last piece is that they're awkward to test because they're like a weird combination of like using a lot of different pieces because their job is to put everything together. But they're also like, you don't want to just write another integration test and have them render all their views and redirect and everything, right? And like, is middleware in play or is it not in play? Is that part of the controller? And if it's- Seems like a lot of like redundant coverage. Right. And so it's like, well, how far am I going with this? Like, am I going to stub out a database connection? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there are cases where it'll be like, okay, in this specific situation, like this parameter is here and you hit it with this route, I want you to redirect to the canonical route, for example. Um, and testing that from an integration perspective is awkward. Like sometimes it might be sort of impossible to do it a de facto way because there's no way to generate the URL because it's some kind of alias or something. Or maybe it's just a weird thing to write an integration test for. And you mean like like a kind of a driving the browser style integration test? Right, exactly. Like I wouldn't want to do that with Capybara. Like it would just be kind of like very blunt, heavy machinery for something that's sort of a precision job. And so for that, I might break out a controller test and hit something, stub almost everything out. Hopefully I don't even have to because I know it's going to redirect and say like, all right, it should redirect to this URL. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is Laracasts. So Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels, covering all sorts of topics in the web application development space, from uh, getting started with frameworks like Laravel to building complex user interfaces with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js and React. I think there's over 700 videos on there right now, which is over 120 hours of content. And Laracast actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners, where if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you actually get 50% off of your first month. So you can get access to 120 hours of content for under five bucks, which is pretty awesome. And I think uh, once you check it out, you'll be hooked. It's probably the best $9 a month that I spend. I always find new stuff there to learn, and it's kind of my go-to resource for any new topic that I'm trying to learn. I'm always hoping that Jeffrey has done a video on something because he does such a great job teaching this material. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely check out Laracast.com and use the special full stack 2016 coupon code to give it a try and get your first month for 50% off. Thanks Laracast for sponsoring the show. Another thing that I guess people run into and have difficulties with a lot with uh, testing and TDD is when you have to work with like external services. So like a perfect example that is something that you'll probably be familiar with is like a code base like Hound, for example, right? That needs to do things like add a user to a organization on GitHub. And that's like a specific thing that it needs to do. That's the sort of stuff that I've always had a really hard time testing and knowing that like for sure my test is confirming that my code is actually doing what it's supposed to do. What is kind of your strategy for that stuff? Um, yeah, so in integration tests, my go-to strategy is to write fakes. And there are two places you can write a fake. One is you can fake out the actual service. And so write like a Sinatra app that acts like GitHub, and then you end up actually hitting it, but your implementation is very bare bones. Like you might return fixtures or you might return minimal JSON or just return response codes. And the other place is if you write your own um, sort of adapter layer between you and GitHub that just has the things that you want to do and returns more direct things that you want back, you can write a fake version of that. 
And then if you do write a fake version of that, like if you do have this adapter layer, are you still testing that adapter layer? Because that needs to either talk to that of the fake GitHub kind of API that you put together or maybe a real something, right? Right. And so once you get into that layer, you have an adapter that talks to GitHub. At that point, you have not like an application that needs to talk to GitHub. You have a class that needs to talk to GitHub. And that's much easier from a testing perspective. Unit testing, that kind of thing is much easier. So you can use um, stubs or a smaller like targeted fake, things like that. They make it easy to say, like, if I call this method on my class, then it should generate a res an HTTP request like this for GitHub. And if I give my class this response from GitHub, then it should, the method should return this value. And there are still a lot of mistakes you can make there. Like, there are a lot of moving parts in connecting to an API. Like, I think people sometimes forget how crazy the stuff we're doing is. But I think it's a lot easier than saying, like, you know, the, the place I see the most kind of developer panic with this stuff is when they're not writing the test first and they wrote a lot of stuff that like OWASP with GitHub and makes HTTP requests and they're like, oh, I feel like I should write a test for this. And then you kind of look at everything you've done and it's like, what do I do? Like, it's it's making HTTP requests, man. Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that stuff is definitely tricky and has always kind of been difficult for me. And like lately I've been getting on this, you know, on board with the fake stuff a lot more. Um, so historically I would sometimes write tests, especially for like an adapter layer that would actually hit the external service um, to verify for sure that the calls that I'm making are the right calls. Because you do kind of have this risk of like not exactly mimicking the, the behavior of the external service, right? And that's kind of a risk you're taking when you're writing a fake for the benefit of being able to run your tests without being connected to the network or for the benefit of speed. Um, it's kind of just a trade-off that, that you have to make, right? But, you know, that, that fear of the API is kind of getting out of sync or that like the behavior isn't going to be exactly right are real things that I worry about. Do you have strategies for kind of like trying to alleviate that or making sure that your fakes are reliable? Uh, well, sort of. So I think there are kind of two sides to that. One is that I think that tests that connect to the actual internet on a regular basis are dead on arrival that what happens is that they are broken windows from the start because someday your Wi-Fi is going to be slow or the service is going to be down or whatever, and you're going to get a false positive. And it only takes a few false positives for a developer to stop trusting them forever. And so you may as well just delete them. And like I think what's worse about that is it actually reduces your confidence in the idea of testing. That like if some of your tests are failing, then whenever you see an actual failure, like, well, that could just be one of those, you know, surprise failures. And so those end up being sort of like poisonous. What I've seen some people do is move those out to a special suite you don't always run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was about to ask about that option. I think that's even worse because what I think happens is you don't run them regularly, so you don't maintain them. And so like you get used to those failing particularly and it just becomes a step that's like, it's just sort of red tape you go through, but it doesn't actually help you. Like I think that when tests aren't providing benefit, it is fine to delete them and actually it's important to delete them because the tests that don't give you benefit remove benefit from the tests that do and then i think the other side of this is like how do you actually write software that works is a big part of that <laughs> it has to be you a human must use the software and like when you use the software locally the difference between that and running like thousands of tests in an automated way and getting failures means that psychologically it'll be okay if like the api is down or like you make a mistake or like if your wi-fi is down like it's just different. You're in a different zone in your head. And so like when you hit refresh and you get that error, you look and it's like, oh, Stripe was down. That's okay. I'm going to continue working. Whereas like if you get a test failure that says like, oh, your software is broken and you look and the software is fine, like it destroys your confidence in testing. So like I just think that testing is a good way to help you refactor, to quickly make modifications without, you know, breaking something to increase your confidence and speed and have like a dialogue with the software while you write it. But it's not the same as using it to make sure that it works. So you're not an advocate of never opening the browser as someone who's like a, a Rails developer or something and being able to say like, I know the tests pass, so I know that the app is working. No, I, I constantly work in the browser and I will actually frequently, like I'll run tests in my console and at the same time I have a browser open that probably has the same failure as my tests. And so like as I move forward, I rerun the tests and I hit refresh. Like I wanna see how the actual product that I'm developing is evolving as I test it, because like the tests are a way to talk to the code, 
but you need as a developer to talk to the product, right? Like that's what you're actually building. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, something that I think comes up a lot is like the idea that TDD is supposed to be about like design more than it is about, um, you know, regression coverage. I feel like when you do like integration testing, especially, and, um, you know, kind of outside in sort of black box stuff to verify that things are working as you expect, it's hard to kind of call that test driven design because you're not really letting that influence like the structure of your code. Uh, so what is kind of like your opinion on like the whole test driven design versus test driven development kind of topic? And what is the job of the test suite for you? Yeah, well, I, I do think that the tests provide benefit in both ways. They help you catch bugs. They help you make sure you're not breaking things, but they do help you design the software. And I think that, um, I think integration tests are generally better at catching bugs. And I, I think they don't provide the same benefit for design. So um, an integration test might tell you which classes you need to be writing. Assuming you wrote a good high-level test of explaining what you need the application to start doing that it wasn't doing before, it will probably tell you the pieces that need to change or the pieces that don't exist that need to come into being. Whereas when you start writing unit tests, it will start helping you write those pieces in a nice way. And it will also tell you like, the integration test is very far away from the stuff you're actually writing. So especially as you start to like dig deep into like view logic and generating SQL and that kind of stuff, like it tells you like roughly what needs to exist. But when you write unit tests, sometimes suddenly it's like, oh man, like when I was writing this integration test, I discovered a class that needed to exist. But when I wrote the unit test, I found out it was four classes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like another thing I guess that uh, comes up for me when I'm thinking about like the acceptance testing versus unit testing thing is that in my experience, and I don't know if it's, I don't think it's just my experience. I think it's kind of a fact, but um, integration tests, I feel like give you a lot more room to refactor than unit tests do, right? Like the more... Uh, low level your tests are and the more collaborators you're isolating the more I feel like you're almost like pouring concrete onto your design as far as your ability to like move things around and uh, refactor things and still see kind of like the same behavior at the end of the day is that something that comes into your consideration when trying to decide how to test a specific thing I think I think they both help you in different ways so there are a lot of different kinds of refactoring and I think one of the most important uh, like groups of refactorings are the very local small ones where you rearrange lines, break up methods, change names internally, things like that. And unit tests are really nice for those. Like you can have a unit test automatically running as you just move things around and you don't expect the behavior to change at all outside that file. Mm -hmm. And it can tell you within milliseconds if you've done something wrong and then you can start backing up. Whereas if you do it with an integration test, again, the error you get is not super good and it's probably like, on the order of seconds in between each change. And when I'm gonna like extract a method seven times and move things around, like the faster the test is, the more likely it is I do it correctly. Sure. And I think that stuff for readability is very, very important. Like object-oriented design and like how should you compose your classes? Like, yes, that's important. And there are times when unit tests can almost seem to get in the way. But I think in terms of the like point level readability things, unit tests are actually more useful. Okay, interesting. I mean, I find that I guess I just see a lot of benefit in the cases where I know f for sure that I can make a s more sweeping-ish change and still know that like from the user's perspective, the application still works. But I guess you guys still get that benefit regardless because even if you make some change that kind of invalidates this or need to make some change to like the design of a system that might invalidate kind of the way a lot of the unit tests are written, you still kind of have that regression coverage from the integration point of view. Mm-hmm. That's true. And sometimes as you're designing things like as you're moving the classes around, you might discover that a lot of the unit tests can be deleted because sometimes a lot of them are testing edge cases that only exist because of the way you assembled the classes. And once you change things where it's like, well, this isn't a Boolean anymore. Now I have two classes. You don't have to test the like if else clause for every one of the methods. Suddenly it becomes so straightforward that it's almost not worth having a test or that test is very easy to copy in. Yeah. So how do you decide like when it's important to have unit tests for something or when it's okay to just run with the acceptance test? And how do you um, decide like when not to have an acceptance or integration test for something? Yeah. So that's a tough question. And a lot of that is definitely like gut instinct. I try to go from a level of like, am I getting good feedback? So like the further and further away you get from clicking on buttons and 
you know, following links, the worse the feedback is from the integration tests. And at that point, I start to get like, I don't know, insecure. So I start to write unit tests. And then kind of the opposite is true. Like the more I'm working on higher level things instead of details of like, you know, these four things should be in order and this should add up to that. Once I get to arranging things on a page, I feel bad about unit tests. And I just have this feeling like I am just testing that the code I'm written is written the way I expect it to. And I'm not actually verifying that something happens. And so I write integration tests. I think sometimes an integration test is a very good discovery tool. And so I write a decent number of acceptance tests that I don't commit. That it's like, I'm making some small change to this page and I don't really know where to start or whatever. So I'll write a new integration test because it's easier to write new code than to change existing code. And because they're so high level and like you should have something you want to happen on the page, you should be able to write an integration test, right? But then at the end of the day, I look at it and I'll be like, I added very little new coverage and I added 1.2 seconds to the test and really it overlaps with the unit test I wanted anyway. And so I just delete it. Um, do you ever write tests where if you're writing like an acceptance test for uh, you know an endpoint that ends up like queuing a background job or something, what is your strategy for testing that stuff? Are you like kind of reaching into where the job would be kind of getting pushed and setting like a mock expectation to make sure that the job got pushed, even though you're kind of like working at that acceptance level? I guess it kind of comes back to that, like the level of abstraction that you're kind of like writing your assertions at sort of thing. I think that's just an interesting scenario that I've run into a couple times where I've had to make a decision about how to test it. And I'm curious how other people do it. Yeah. Well, if you think of the integration tests as being broad and not deep and that you want them to catch problems and not really specify too much, it makes sense to have the background jobs just running normally in the tests in order to eliminate as many like false positives and additional challenges. We usually have them run synchronously during tests. Now that presents obvious problems because now you're treating a uh, like asynchronous multi-process environment as if it's not there, right? And so you're actually failing to catch a whole class of problems. But uh, like if you've written Capybara tests and tried to get them to be synchronous, especially back before Capybara was so good, then you know that writing tests for asynchronous applications is extremely hard. <laughs> and so like what I've found with background jobs is that although I know I am discarding an entire class of mistakes that I could catch with a test, I am also eliminating a significantly larger number of false positives that cause me to just waste my time and not believe the tests. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it comes to like a point that I think is interesting to talk about, which is I find that a common misconception, uh, at least in my opinion, that beginners have uh, when they're trying to like learn how to test things properly is this idea that there's always a right way to test a specific thing and that you would test that thing the same way in every app all the time. Uh, where in my experience, you really have to like take into account like, well, how do I anticipate that this app is going to change or would I rather be coupled to this or would I rather be coupled to this? And it's just like your best informed guess most of the time to try and write the test that's going to give you kind of the most value for the situation that you're in. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea. I think you're absolutely right. I think there isn't a right single way to test most things. Like I would guess that there are several ways in almost every situation that would be valid. And that part of it is the tests are supposed to help you do whatever you're doing. Like people think of tests as like a safety thing. That's like, it would be irresponsible to not do this. But once you develop testing practices, they should actually be helping you do whatever you're doing. And so a lot of the time, I think for an experienced uh, test author, it's more obvious what to do because it's more obvious what's helping you and what's not. So like as you're writing integration tests, like if you're thinking about it from the perspective of like, I must have this ironclad proof to make my application work, then it seems like there must be a correct solution and you're nervous when you're not sure you have it. But if you're thinking about it from the perspective of like, I've been writing this integration test and I don't really know what to do. I'm going to move to a different kind of test then it's more intuitive because you just move back and forth between things as they become more and less useful. Yeah, so more about just trying to kind of like, what can I put in my editor that's going to help me know that what I'm doing is working sort of thing. Right, and like also let you know what you're doing at all, right? <laughs> so like sometimes you write things and it's like, it's not totally clear to me what this method does or like what it should do or how this library works. And as you write tests, like you're interacting with the code. 
And so it's it's not just a matter of proof, it's also a matter of discovery. And I think that's like at least as valuable as the idea, particularly in unit tests, at least as valuable as proving that things work a certain way. It's about creating a better dialogue between you and the code you're trying to write. I think um, kind of a, a common idea with test-driven development specifically is that like the biggest benefit is that it forces you to kind of write well-designed code. You know what I mean? Like this idea that somehow if you write your tests first and you do everything, you know, the quote unquote right way that you'll automatically end up with um, well-designed code. But I haven't really found that to be true. What is your opinion on that? Um, I don't think it's that writing the tests first magically forces you to write code or that there is like a correct way that's going to make it work. I think writing tests and using your code while you're doing it provides more opportunities to spot potential improvements or problems before it gets committed. And so if you're having a hard time testing something because it's really far away from you, it's like, maybe this isn't actually what this class should be doing at all. Like, if I can't write a test for it, then how am I supposed to use it? Yeah, that makes sense. I, like, I think one of the reasons that I like to write tests first is because it gives me an opportunity to kind of like sketch out what I even want to be able to do and, you know, kind of make some decisions up front about like, okay, well, I want to kind of put this data in and then this data should come back. And it just kind of like gives me like a, a kind of a map, I guess, for, for where I'm going to go and like an anchor to kind of come back to and always know like, okay, this is what I'm working towards. This is the problem that I'm solving and, and not getting too carried away, lost in the woods, working on something else and just like having it well-defined. What are some of the benefits for you in working in like a test-driven style? Well, I think if I don't do that, I don't know where I am in my testing scope. So if you just start writing some code and then you decide you're going to test it, like at what point do you decide like, that was enough code I just wrote. I guess I'll write some tests. Like what? what's the granularity? What's the level of accuracy? Whereas if you write things and you you get to the point where you have an expectation and you try and get close closer to it, like every time you get closer to the expectation, you know what you need to do next. And when the expectation passes, you know you need a new one. Whereas like if I'm just like, mm, now I'm going to write a model. And then when I'm done with it, it's like, I guess I'll write a test for that somewhere. Or maybe not. I feel pretty good about it. I don't know. I also like, I think the longer you write production code without writing tests, the more danger there is that you just have no idea how to put it in a testable state anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess like I find that to be true too, even though I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that like um, if you don't write your tests first, that you're going to have badly designed code or if they do write them first, you're going to end up with well-designed code. But there is just something about like forcing yourself to do it first that at least like guarantees you will have tests for that sort of thing instead of having to come back and try and make decisions later on about like well okay well how should i kind of slice this up now like how many tests should i write what parts should i test together what parts should i test on their own i found like in my experience the biggest problem that happens when people try to write tests after the fact is you're much more likely to like fall into this trap where your tests are basically testing that you wrote the code you wrote not that you wrote the code that solved the problem that you were trying to solve you know what i mean right is that something that you've seen yeah i've definitely seen that i've also seen that like if there is something useful you're going to find from your tests if there is a discovery you'll find from unit testing it it's really annoying to find that after the fact so like if you implement some class and you're like I think I feel pretty good about that. Now I'll write a test. And then as you're writing it, it's like, oh, it's really hard to test this because there's this other thing that's like in the way. I guess that should be its own class. Then like it would have been good to know that at the beginning. <laughs> Just wanted to take another quick break to thank our second sponsor of the show, Rollbar. So one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, of course, right? You know, either you rely on your users to report errors or you're digging through log files trying to figure out what went wrong or Maybe you're hooked up to an existing tool and you got millions of alerts flooding your inbox all day long. Uh, Rollbar is like a full stack error monitoring solution. And with Rollbar, you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is really easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and frameworks, including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS. You know, you get the picture. If you're a Laravel developer, 
developer like myself, there's actually a package that you can use that integrates with Rollbar really quickly. So Rollbar also integrates with a lot of different other tools, like it can send your errors to Slack or HipChat or create new issues in GitHub, Jira, and stuff like that. And uh, for full stack radio listeners, Rollbar actually has a special offer where if you sign up at rollbar.com slash full stack radio, you get access to their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So you get like 300,000 errors tracked for free. So give Rollbar a try. Head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio to try out the bootstrap plan. And thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the show. What do you think about the whole like... uh you know, like JB Rainsberger's integration tests are a scam uh, presentation or post. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I haven't seen that one. If I see anything with a title like that, I just move <laughs> on. <laughs> it's a few years old and it's like pretty well known. But um, I guess it's kind of like a not necessarily a super common opinion, but something you'll see a lot online. You know, people saying that like if you can't figure out how to unit test this code in isolation, then you know you're doing it wrong. Or integration tests, you're going to have to write more and more and more and more and more of them to cover every case. Than you would if you if you wrote uh, unit tests. Uh, you guys seem to write you know a lot of integration tests and kind of drive the whole workflow from the integration test point of view. So I'd be curious to kind of hear what your like defense is for kind of the integration test as a thing. <laughs> well, I think I mean I don't know how to answer things that are like if you're doing if you can't do this you're doing it wrong. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that just approaches the problem the wrong way. But I think that if you just if you write a lot of unit tests and you test everything in isolation, then at least from the regression perspective, you're not getting a lot because you never actually check at all to see if things are lined up. So like you can have a nice URL and have a nice route and have a nice controller, but if the parameter names are different in each place, it's not going to work. And like, those are realistic things. I think people have to acknowledge that very smart, careful people do. Typos are just like a problem. You're going to get the A and the I backwards in one place. And if you don't have an integration test, then you're going to be unit testing that it's AI in your class and IA in your controller. And then your test pass and it doesn't work at all. Like it's not usable. So not having any integration tests seems to me like a, a plain failure in terms of regression checking. Like you can make very easy errors all over the place that will completely break your application. I think like what happens in in my experience too, is if you're, if you try and start with like a unit test for everything and try and decide what pieces you need in advance and what their collaborators should be and how they should all be talking to each other. It sounds like a nice idea, you know, like I feel like it's like minority report or something and you're kind of like deciding you know, how to architect the code or whatever. But to me, it almost feels like, um, like a cocky way to approach like designing things versus like define like what it is that like the actual user of the application needs. And then like, get it working as fast as I can. Now I have like the most information possible about like what was needed to actually, you know, solve the problem. And I can go about, you know, unit testing everything once I know what the pieces actually are, because I've verified that those pieces were needed to actually accomplish the goal. Yeah, definitely. I think outside in is definitely the way to go. If your goal is to discover what software is necessary to solve a human problem. Like if you start with like UML diagrams and pick out all your different classes and things like that, like you're not actually talking about features and bugs at all. So if you're writing the integration tests first all the time for everything, does that mean that you always have the same number or more integration tests than you have unit tests? You know what I mean? Or when when do situations show up? Like what are examples of situations where um, you might implement you know, make some change to the code base or implement some new feature that doesn't result in both a new acceptance test being driven out, you know, and more unit tests. Right. Well, so I think there are some cases. So when we start outside in, it means we start from like the highest level where the change needs to be made. So the the fastest way to discover that fact would be to write an integration test. But there are times where you know where the change needs to be made. Like if I am adding fields to an existing form, then you you can you can know like one layer that needs to change right and so you might not add an integration test if you feel comfortable making the changes without that feedback and that is definitely like a subjective you know it just feels right kind of thing you just say well i know what i have to do i know that these are the three pieces of rails that need to change the other thing is that i will frequently like i said i'll i'll write integration tests that i don't commit because they're so fast to write that it's not like, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time on it. I wrote five lines of capybara to click a button. And then at the end, if it's not valuable because I have it covered by unit tests or whatever, I just delete it. Yeah. 
So if you're doing something, say, though, like where uh, maybe it's a validation rule or something that you need to add and you decide like, oh, like the customers decided now that like this field can not be longer than 30 characters or whatever. And before that wasn't a rule. And there's already some other validation rules that like you're making sure are there with tests. Is that something that you're going to write an acceptance test for and make sure that like, oh, when I submit this form with a 31 character field that I see this span, you know, with the red error text or whatever, or would you introduce that at a different layer? I would be very unlikely to write an integration test for that particular validation. And if there was some circumstance that led me to writing it, I'd be even less likely to keep it <laughs> because like it, it's such a formulaic thing. It's not generally weird in Rails because validations are handled, handled a step, uh, standard way. So like I will probably have an integration test that verifies that like there can be validations and I, I can do something with them, but I won't have one for each validation in each situation. How do you decide what the test does look like at the acceptance layer that's checking validation stuff like what data are you submitting in the form or how are you making that decision about like which rules should be exercised there and which ones should in or uh, a really common one for me is to submit a blank form so like that's actually something that's kind of easy to mess up right like if you forget to reassign an instance variable on the else clause when you're saying like okay if i save it then redirect to it otherwise render the form and you don't assign any instance variables then page crashes and you can have all the unit tests you want and that's still going to happen so I think it's good to have one that's just like, what happens if I just click the button? Because that's something users are going to do. They're just going to press enter sometimes. Yeah, I, I have in the past like done, you know, like uh, acceptance level tests for like every validation rule. And I don't really know what like my justification is for it more than like, I know that if the user submits the form with this data that they need to see an error. And what if I change something that somehow results in that no longer happening? I want that feedback. But maybe that just comes down to one of those things where it's like, are you trying to make sure every single code path in the application ever is tested in every possible way? Or are you just trying to build a test suite where you can run it and feel confident that you can deploy the application? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have sympathy for that approach because in one respect, it's like, it's just the most obvious thing to do, right? Like if you're saying like, I want the software to work, okay, I will write a program where the computer tries everything the user should be able to do and make sure that it works. Totally relatable, right? Like if you start to break it down, you can see where it doesn't work. But I absolutely see why a person would do that, at least for one application. Sure. <laughs> Maybe it's time to start getting uh, wraps up here, but is there anything, I guess, that, what are like common things that you see people making mistakes with when they're doing test-driven development uh, or testing in general or or things that maybe you do a little bit differently at ThoughtBot that you think other people would be able to learn from that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Uh, I think there are two common misconceptions I see that hurt people. One is I think that testing in like unit versus integrated is a spectrum and not a Boolean thing. And I would treat it that way. And instead of trying to have rules of like, oh, but I'm not supposed to ever touch any other class, you should think about like what would be useful to stub out and what won't be useful to stub out. And why is this hard to stub out? Like listen to what your tests are telling you and act reasonably instead of trying to have a lot of rules or dogma around it. Um, and I think the other thing is that it's some place, I think it's useful to have the highest level kind of test as, as you can, which for us is generally a capybara test. And at that level, you stub out as few things as possible. And there will be places where you have to make an exception for pragmatic reasons like an external service or you might not want to go through the login page every time. So maybe you set a cookie directly, which is like, I don't know about you, but I don't usually set cookies myself in my browser. So it's kind of weird, but you know what I mean? You might save 40 seconds from your test suite. So it might be worth doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess like the whole test speed thing is an interesting topic in general. Like I feel like almost everything that you could possibly do to make your tests faster has like a cost. Like there's not really anything that you get for free usually like in the example that you're talking about like well we're going to set the cookie manually to speed up our tests but now we're not mimicking the user the way that the we would have been before everyone always talks about like how important it is to have like a, a fast test suite but i don't think the idea of like what you're trading away when trying to make your test suite fast comes up enough or is or is discussed enough so that might be an interesting thing to close on if you have any opinions on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think test speed is an issue because if you just keep writing tests, if you keep adding tests, it gets slower all the time, right? So, 
you know, we talk a lot about refactoring and making sure that things are maintainable for the future, but the idea of a test suite that forever gets slower is obviously not sustainable, right? Like someday, who knows what day, but someday it will be too slow. Um, I think that the best, like the best thing you can do to keep a test suite fast is to be careful about which tests you add. Like not every test adds value and every test costs something, not just in terms of speed, but in terms of having code that you now own, right? And so adding too many tests that don't provide a lot of value is a common mistake, I think. Uh, like over-testing, testing the same thing many times, running the same co code over and over again. Like, I think it's worthwhile to have an integration test that goes through your login form. I think it is likely harmful to have 4,000 of them. Like, if you submitted the login form the first time and it worked, it probably works the next time. And then it probably works the next thousand times after that. Yeah, the login form one, I think, is a common example that's easy for everyone to understand is there any more like more nefarious examples of that that you can think of that trap people more often i think the um i think almost every application has some core thing which is like this is where all my stuff ended up living this is what users do the most with this is where the most complex ui is this is the biggest model and i think that people just keep hitting that when they write tests and you know, because in their brain, the application starts there, like it might be the dashboard or some critical view, they also start all their tests there. And so if you look through a suite, like I bet you could write a program that detects this, which is like, what is your starting recipe for every test? First, you create a user, then you sign in as that user, then you go to their dashboard. And I think thinking about that a little bit, the same way you would think about code, like if every one of my classes starts this way, I would abstract something. Why would I start every test this way? And then if you abstract something, like, first of all, it's out of your hair, like you don't have so much code. But second of all, suddenly you have a piece of code that's invoked by every test that you can make faster. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. What's the best way for people to kind of uh, keep up with what you're doing? Or do you have any recommendations on uh, resources and stuff for people to check out if they want to learn more about how you guys test things at ThoughtBot? Well, I think this is unfortunate, but actually I think the... The single best resource on what we talked about today for writing tests is on the Code Climate blog. And it was a post years ago. I think the title was The Testing Pyramid or The Pyramid of TDD, something like that. And it just talks about the breakdown of like different levels of granularity for tests that you might see and how many of them you expect to see them, like what they're good for, what they look like. I think that's a really good starting place. Awesome. So where can people kind of uh, keep up with you? Uh, I do post on our blog more than anywhere else. So Awesome. I'll make sure to uh, link to that in the show notes. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on, Joe. It was awesome getting to uh, chat with you about this stuff. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Thanks for having me. So if you're interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be available at fullstackradio.com slash 46. Thanks as always to Laracast and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about Test Driven Laravel, head over to testdrivenlaravel.com or check out the show notes for the link. Thanks everyone. See you next time.